Welcome to the Faculty Podcast, brought to you by Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., part of a 50-plus year endeavor to train pastors and other church leaders in the ministry of the gospel in the United States and around the world. My name is Scott Redd. I'm the president here, and I'm joined by my colleagues, who you all know well, Dr. Paul Jean, Dr. Grace Sutanto, Dr. Peter Lee, and Dr. Tommy Keene. And we're continuing on in our series on reading guides to books in the Bible. And we hope that this has been a benefit to you all as you're uh, doing your own biblical study and devotional reading, but also as you're prepping for Sunday schools or sermons. I've, I've actually had some great conversations with listeners who are using these in a variety of different ways, way beyond what we had anticipated. And so we love doing it. I'm learning every time we have one of these conversations. And we hope that this is a benefit to you all as well. We're going to move on now to a book of no small importance to the Reformed tradition, to Christian theology, and that is Paul's letter to the Romans. And uh, we, we bit off a big chunk with the Psalms and had to do two episodes to cover it. And uh, we're not backing down, but we're going to go on to another similarly freighted book, a book that's filled with theology, um, perhaps even a kind of introductory theology of Paul, if this truly is his introduction to the church in Rome. And that might help us understand a little bit of how he's um, or why he's being so expansive in his theology. He doesn't assume anything with the audience, but he's telling us everything. He's leaving it all on the table, as it were. And so what we want to do is dive into this book and talk about how to approach it. How do we think about it as a whole? And what's the best way to expound it and understand it and articulate it to others? So let me start with you, Dr. Paul Jean, a Pauline scholar, a scholar of the Pauline epistolary. Um, Dr. Jean, help us understand, okay, first of all, what is, give us in a nutshell, as we've been doing over the course of these studies, what is the book of Romans and what is it trying to tell us? Those are um, big questions. <laughs> Yeah, we want, to, we want to start big, and then we'll call it, drive down to the to the base to the details. All right. So there are so many views on what Romans is about, but I take it in this way. Basically, this is an opportunity for Paul uh, to summarize uh, much of what he believes, and he knows that his audience has heard a lot about him. So it's a complicated letter because even though there isn't an occasion in the way there might be an occasion in Galatians or Corinthians, he's aware that he needs to clarify, particularly, I think, his view on the law. So um, that's sort of the general context, I think, of the letter. Um, there are so many views on what Romans is about. And I, you know, I actually want to be careful not to uh, fall into name calling like oh that's just the lutheran view or that's the reform view this is just as we work through the bible um, i do think that romans is paul's summary of like how one is counted uh, righteous before god it, it is about justification undoubtedly however we don't want to be reductionistic because um, as paul writes this he's always preoccupied with uh, reconciliation between jew and gentile and so you know uh, might as well say this, but when people say the gospel is not about racial reconciliation, yes and no. Like it, it's a very like loaded statement, but yes, the gospel I think is primarily about how 
God saves sinners. And there is undoubtedly an individual component to that, you know, where uh, Jesus' righteousness is imputed to us. But the way Paul talks about, um, you might say, individual justification is always tied into his sense of horizontal reconciliation as well. And so Romans does address the question of how one is saved, but Romans also addresses the question of how that salvation leads to uh, reconciliation between all people. So I think that's a good overview. Now, in terms of the letter, uh, it's so massive that we turn to Dr. Keene for oh guidance. My oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> turn to Dr. Keene to talk about the massiveness of it. No, but actually one, one thought I do have is you do want to pay attention to the structure. Uh, we said this when we first began this series. You just cannot understand Romans without constantly thinking about how Paul structures the letter. So with that, Dr. Keene. I feel like we picked a Pauline book for to get you to talk more. We want to hear from you. You've written like a commentary on every book that Paul has written. <laughs> All right. The complete works of Paul John on Paul. <laughs> oh, we should include well, this. Let me, let, me, let me start with, let me, let me then take it back to you with this though, Paul John. I'm talking about Paul of Tarshish. Um, help us understand, you said it's a big, long letter dealing with the gospel of salvation by faith and its implication for racial relationships in this church in Rome. What do you think about the theory that this is, you know, the, the occasion for this is that it's a fundraising letter, that this is Paul you know, raising money or support or prayer support for his work in Spain, which is a topic that he ends up with at the end of the book. Um, what do you think about that? Is that is, is that the reason why he's making this argument? Is that he's, you know, trying to esteem himself to them so that they'll support him in his missionary work? You know, when someone says like it's a fundraising letter, it sort of depends on what they mean by that. Like, it is true that Paul was always raising money, you know, and we, we don't ever want to minimize that. And probably, you know, to that end, he did need to clarify what he believed in. And even from a you know, contemporary perspective, that makes sense. When we raise funds, we need to clarify exactly who we are and what we believe. So I think there is definitely an aspect where Paul was seeking to clarify his beliefs in order to facilitate fundraising. But you know, going back, I think, to the question of structure, you have the typical introduction and conclusion. But it is, I think, still very helpful, uh, the traditional outline of Romans 1 through 11 being more of an exposition of what Paul believes in terms of the gospel. And then Romans 12 towards the end is more of an application. So I don't want to uh, divide it too simplistically, but as far as like it being a pedagogical tool, I think that's still a very useful way to organize the letter. And then within that, you have more you know, breakdowns. But I think anyone that's approaching it would want to see chapters 1 through 11. This is Paul again expositing his gospel. And then working that out. Now, interestingly, I think that a lot of people that try to apply Romans 12 and on, they actually don't really take seriously what has come before. And so it can become just, you mm -hmm. know, too practical. You need to really be able to tie the two sections together. I mean, so. to your point, Scott, I, I encourage students to start uh, to, to consider the end of Romans as, as kind of a, a, a way of breaking down some of our common assumptions about the book. Um, 
you know, the end of Romans, it feels Romans 16, you take a look at it, it feels very dry. It's just a list of names after all. Um, greet greet so and so and and then greet Prisca and Aquila and you know, it's just this list of uh names, but that list of names is a reminder about to us about a couple of things that are going on in the book. First, that Paul is writing to a real church for real pastoral reasons. This is not a kind of, though it is highly theological, and though I do think it summarizes much of Paul's gospel, his teaching, it's not a systematic theology. It's designed for this church to, to address pastoral issues, one of which, you know, when you look at this list of names, we've got Jewish names, we've got um, we've got Greek names, we've got names that are typical of slave names, we've got names that are that have kind of an aristocratic feel to them. Uh, we, you know, we've got a whole wide range of names. Um, and then right before this list of names, you get this call: I appeal to you, brothers, to stand firm, to that let nothing divide you. Um, and to Paul's point, there's this strong emphasis in the in the book about the unity that we have Jew and Gentile especially but um comprehensive unity that covers everything we are as a church and i wonder if paul is writing to rome not because there's some theological problem with that but because he sees this roman church as a kind of flagship church in terms of the unity that it, that they experience in fast go all the way rewind all the way back to romans 1 and that language of unity is right there in the thesis statement of the book. Uh, the righteousness of God gets a lot of play in that thesis statement. I believe, you know, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is a revelation of the righteousness of God for salvation. But that right there is for the Jew first and also the Greek. And you see that righteousness of God, which unites the unites us in our common humanity through Christ our King, you know, Romans 5, etc. Hmm. Amen. Well, you mentioned that this is not a systematic theology text, but I wonder what you New Testament uh, scholars think about all the different systematic theological debates that reside in the book of Romans, mm. right? So theologians debate on the implications of Romans 1 for apologetics and epistemology, Romans 5 on original sin, Romans 6 and 7 on sanctification, Romans 9 on predestination, right? Are these theological debates kind of ignoring the actual content of Paul's letters? Sometimes when I meet... New Testament scholars, that's what they're saying. They're saying systematic theologians abstract Paul's content from his historical context. Or are they actually getting at real exegetical issues in the book of Romans? I wonder what you all would think about that. Well, I think sometimes, um, I think it's too much of a, I agree, you're not making the statement, but I think that's too much of a general indictment. Yeah, there are times when like we can just do theological reflection and almost just proof text, right? But when you have like a scholar like uh, Dr. Dick Gaffin, I think his theology is always based on not just very careful exegesis, I mean, incredible exegesis, but also an appreciation for biblical theology, right? And so I think that i I still think it's very valid to base your theology on yeah. careful exegesis, you know, as far as not paying enough attention to like historical background and all that. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, we can always become sharper in that regard. But um, I think that, like you said, Romans 1 is still a great place for epistemology, apologetics. Um you know, Romans 5 in terms of understanding two-atom Christology. So I, 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 yeah, I celebrate I, it. I yeah. agree. 
it's important to remember the contextual and historical background of Romans, and that does get lost, especially from a, a kind of modern theological point of view. We can we can miss Paul's pastoral and practical emphasis, the missionary journey, the all of these things that that have been brought forward, and so. I want to capture that, the historical, contextual nature of this letter, while also recognizing that precisely because it is an introductory letter, it is a summary, it has these these, these practical components of uh, united under one gospel and introduction of Paul's theology as a kind of primer as he goes to Spain. All of those things help us to understand why Romans has the shape and the length that it does, it does function as a kind of summary of the key points of Paul's gospel as he brings the king of the Jews before the Gentiles, as, as he presents to us and calls Gentiles to be grafted into the, this, this grace that belongs to Abraham, to be children of Abraham. So it, it has that summarizing function for which theology is an appropriate mode of, of discourse, and yet it is for a particular people in a particular space. So can you comment on who's right in these debates? Which debates? Uh, apologetics, original sin, uh, justification, sanctification. Versus I'm saying this with tongue in cheek. Gray, Gray, you are right. <laughs> Thank you. That's all I needed to hear. No, but... Um, There's a genre of uh, you know, analogy here that we talked about a little bit when we were talking about the Psalter. I mean, the Psalter tends to state things. Now it's the stating things poetically, but it's stating things propositionally. And I think that's one of the reasons we talked about why ST uses, um, you know, uses the Psalter so much. And I think that there's some, something to that too with the Pauline epistles is that they tend to be propositional. They make a lot of propositional statements. And so it's just, there's a shorter distance for the systematic theologian to go He's not unpacking a story and developing theology, a propositional statement out of it, but he's got propositions in Paul. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, Romans is the largest coherent system of propositions yeah. that's put together in the New Testament. So, I mean, I think that that's another reason why it's it's considered that. And it's just sort of a natural hermeneutic point. You don't have to, you don't have as far of a distance to go in terms of ex- exposition. And there's value to that, I think. Yeah, there's you nothing know, wrong I mean, with it. Uh, yeah. you know, you know, there are to, at least there was a time when propositional truth was just flat out denied, uh, but it's hard to do that when you read Romans. So you can have a clear doctrine of justification distinct from sanctification uh, in Romans really clearly outlined that it's a real benefit to God's people. Mm-hmm. Um, you can get that in the Psalms, as you were saying, or in mm-hmm. Isaiah, but it takes a little bit more maneuvering yeah. to, to get to that. Mm-hmm. But uh, the advantage of having something as an epistle that clearly gives us that doctrine is to our advantage. No. Uh, or from John, from that matter, or, or Mark, you know, Mark, that's, that's or a, anyone. You know, that's, right, that's right. Anything that is kind of non-propositional teaching that you have mm-hmm. in the Gospels. Well, and I think Romans 9 through 11 is actually a good example, good kind of test case in that. So often we look at that passage and this is this is the classic spot where we get a, where we can discuss the reform doctrines of predestination and things things of that nature, um, and can you know can we do that? Yes, but we also need to focus on the fact that Paul is actually not answering that question. It, it, the main focus is not there is not how you get saved, 
but then, but rather, what then becomes of Israel, mm-hmm. uh, g- given that God has been faithful to the Gentile and to the Jew, and that Paul sees so few of his brethren coming to faith? Right. Is that some sort of injustice in God? Is that indicative that this is not the true gospel? And Paul's answer is no, because predestination. Yeah. So you can do the work of because predestination there, but we also need to capture that that is presented and discussed and talked about by Paul for pastoral reasons. It's predestination for pastoral theology, not the other way around. Now, I've heard it, uh, I think it was one of my seminary professors, and I can't recall who who's, who recommended something, Tommy, that you kind of alluded to, uh, just how thorough the Book of Romans, or maybe, Paul, you mentioned it. One of you guys mentioned it. Maybe it was great. I don't know. Someone here mentioned the idea that 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 Romans is just is very thorough, and that uh, for that reason, for a young uh, pastor who's just getting started in ministry, that maybe one thing he might want to do is very early on is to preach through the Book of Romans. The rationale behind that is that it really grounds him in his theology, it grounds his congregation on a, on 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 their theology. Uh, it really is sort of an introduction. It gives the pastor an introduction. Uh, of his thoughts to a congregation that he may pastor for, you know, for however many years. What what do you think of that? Do you think there's some wisdom to that pastorally for, for a young guy uh, to, you know, as he's getting started in his new church? It's funny you mentioned that because I've had three or four pastors who will who won't preach on Romans until like the end of their career. It's Paul's magnum opus. It's the apex. You know, it's it's Mount Everest. And <laughs> I actually think that's an unhealthy. Approach. That's why I have students start at the end at 15 and 16. Paul, Paul is a pastor first, and he is. Speak of Lutheran as well, kind of <laughs> leveling the canon so that certain texts are more important and <laughs> need to wait till yeah. you're older. Mm. Sorry. You know, take it. No, that's, that's perfect. Like Paul, Paul is a pastor first, and, a, and theology is in service to his pastoral ministry. And I, I think that that's an appropriate yeah. encouragement given given that. I actually remember in our Bible major curriculum at Biola University, they actually require one class in the Book of Romans that every Bible major needs to take. So in terms of like Gospel of John, Gospel of Luke, things like that, those are considered electives. You don't have to take them, but but the Book of Romans, interestingly, you have to take it. That's it's. I think that's stuck in our kind of Protestant mindset. I mean, even here at, at RTS, we have Acts and Romans. Romans is and Pauline epistles. You know, you take those separate. There's this. Those are and two we all know classes, two right? different classes, Acts and Romans and you is spend, one, and then Pauline Epistles. And then Pauline Epistles. And yeah. we all know that Hebrews is the apex of the canon, so I'm not <laughs> sure why. <laughs> it's... But clearly, even in that class, Tom, you would spend 11 weeks in the book of Romans and one week in Acts. <laughs> I, I weighed it actually heavily on, uh, it's it's probably a two-thirds uh, Acts yeah. and a one-third Romans because they're getting Pauline Epistles from Paul, uh, from Dr. Paul John, John here. Yeah. And so they get that kind of theological framework yeah and i don't have to revisit that in romans so we focus on you know how does the specific argument of the whole work rather than paul's theology as a whole gray you were thinking about how dr lee teaches genesis throughout the whole course of the pentateuch class i think that's what you got confused i I get enough for students i get it from you guys as well um hey tommy i i really appreciated uh the the Question, the answer, your thoughts about Romans and uh, and not to be too intimidated by it, uh, especially your comment about um, 
uh, that Paul was writing as a pastor mm. or a pastor theologian, I guess, you know, we had that yeah. discussion way back and, and not have to, to put those two at, at odds with each other. Um, and, and the reason why I, I really value that and appreciate your thoughts on it, and, and I know, you know, our beloved Dr. John here really models this as well. I don't know about gray over there, but um, <laughs> the, the you know the 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 scholar who is interested in the well-being of God's people, you know that yeah. idea that that theology um, serves a purpose, and that is to encourage and and edify the people of God to to not just give them um, a orthodox theology, but an orthopraxy, a, a good expression of that, and how those two. Are not ever to be divorced from each other, and and um, and 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 I think at times we kind of, uh, you know, our Reformed tradition, perhaps in at least in our day today, doesn't always reflect that that well, and that's something that's uh, really important to keep in mind. Hmm. Well, the context, as we're talking about this, we've talked about how it's 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 dealing with soteriology, salvation. How are you saved? Within implications, as we pointed out in chapters nine through eleven, for what does that mean for Israel today? And then application of that from 12 to the end. Um, why why this Jew-Gentile issue? I mean, obviously it seems like this is a mixed church. Okay, he's writing to a church that's mixed with Jewish believers and Gentiles, perhaps even at a time when Christianity is, is in the midst of being distinguished as a Jewish sect. It may have been thought of as simply just another Second Temple movement, but it's kind of distinguishing itself out now in a new way, particularly because of all of this influx of Gentiles coming in. Um, you know, some have proposed, what, what do you all think of, uh, I ask this to the New Testament professors, the, the historical argument that, that this is also following the return mm -hmm. of Jewish Christians following King Claudius's banishment of them uh, due to kind of unjust, uh, you know, blaming them for um, some uh, destruction that had happened in Rome, that they're coming back in and they're coming back into a church that's now been run by Gentiles and it was formerly run by them. You know, that, that's that's one thing I've heard scholars yeah. argue. And so he's not just writing sort of abstractly about a Jewish Gentile problem, but that this is actually a church in conflict. Which of course, if that's if this is the case, then that's also very relevant for our churches today, where yep. there's still where there's often a lot of conflict as well. Does that historical context hold up? I think so. In fact, it's embedded in Romans 15. It's and it's a global conflict. There, unlike Galatians, Romans doesn't seem to be written into a kind of particular division. He doesn't have names to name. He doesn't. He's not aware of any controversy. But he's. This is maybe kind of a a preliminary strike against a uh, possible division because for Paul, this is incredibly personal and global everywhere he goes. We see this conflict between Jew and Gentile and how do we structurally, theologically, ecclesiologically have both groups under the same roof. Um, so it's, it's, it's at the heart of Paul's ministry. In fact, he, he um, mentions it in Romans 15, that I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. So uh, these, this aid comes from Macedonia and Achaia, these primarily Gentile churches. And they were pleased to do it because they owe it to them. If the Gentiles have come to share in the spiritual blessings, they also ought to have service in the material blessings. And Paul asks for prayer. Pray that the, this aid will be received by those in Jerusalem. And 
I mean, for me, the question arises, why would it not be? I mean, Paul is bringing bags of money. He's he's Santa Claus. No one no one turns Santa Claus away. But these these this bag of these bags of money collected from Gentile churches in order to support the primarily Jewish church in Palestine comes theologically loaded for Paul. Paul Paul loads it's not, hey guys, this is just money and money's money. It he says the Gentiles were pleased to do it. Why? Because they have come to share in the spiritual blessings of Abraham. And so they are giving material blessings to Jerusalem. So it it is this money is a symbol for Paul of the one gospel, of the mm-hmm. gospel which unites Jew and Gentile. Um, and so I think it's appropriate to see the rest of Romans as a kind of theological grounding mm-hmm. of that one gospel, one Christ, one Lord. Yeah, Abraham has many sons, and I am one of them, and so are you. That's that's his gospel, and this is Romans' theological exposition of that, with the practical benefit that we should live as one people. And you can see the debate that these two groups would have been having in the way that he's debating with himself. People often talk about how Paul has this like dialectal, way, yeah, you know, yeah. should I do this? May it never be and that kind of thing. But actually, kind of read between the lines. What's he doing? He's he's anticipating. He's playing out this almost kind of dramatical sketch of the debates that would take place, you know, and then you can follow that logic in his, even in the opening chapters, he says, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. Let's now talk about the fact that all have fallen, right? All yeah. have known God, but did not glorify him. So their hearts became dark you know, their thoughts futile. And so God gave them over. In other words, what does that mean? Well, we're all dead in our sin, right? We all have, you know, throats like empty graves, as Isaiah says of the corrupt in Israel. And he kind of develops this argument. Well, what would you say about the law then? Does the law Mm -hmm. make us better than others? You know, no, the law actually just compounds the curse that you knew, but you didn't you didn't follow, but uh, how about Abraham? Was he saved then? Can we say anyone in the Old Testament will say, "Yes, Abraham saved the same way you are"? It's kind of like he's 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 interacting with the questions to me, to my mind, and you, we see this in the, the Old Testament prophets did this too. They they'd say things like, you know. How long will you, uh, you know, or, or if you do not turn away from X, Y, and Z, and, and by reading what X, Y, and Z is, you can see the the claims that his audience was bringing against the prophet himself, you know, and I, I think we see this with Paul. He's developing this argument and he's, an, he's anticipating rebuttals from both the Jewish mm-hmm. and the Gentile side. And it seems to me, now set me straight here if I'm wrong, the Jewish complaint would have been we're better, we're the real Christians, we're the ones who've got the prophets and the law. These Gentiles are secondary and need to remember their place and stay stay out of our way. Whereas the Gentiles might say something like, we're better than you, we're the ones who have come to faith in mass, you guys have not. Why didn't you accept the Messiah when he came? This seems to be kind of the chapter nine through 11 discussion where Paul's trying mm-hmm. to figure out what's God doing in redemptive history that the Jews didn't rush in. They did in part, but not in full. As Jesus says, you know, I would have gathered Jerusalem like a mother hen gathers her chicks, but they didn't, I didn't, I didn't, he didn't ascend to a throne. He ascended to the cross when he entered into his capital city. You know, there's, there's this kind of back and forth. And Paul interestingly, isn't to my mind, he isn't knocking both sides down. But he's saying no. The Gentile, the Jews are the older brother. They do have that yeah. honored position. For the Jew first, and also yeah. the Greek. Yeah. But you Gentiles 
are grafted in. Your branch is grafted in. So you're grafted, be humble, but you are grafted in. Yeah. You and are you, part of the tree. You can be cut off. Yep. Right. As, right. And for example, as they were. Yeah. Yeah. That there's this, and that's where we get this idea of true Israel versus false Israel. And this, by the way, to me, really does um, you do away with that idea that the Old Testament was a blood principle and the New Testament's a faith principle. I think mm-hmm. what Paul is saying there is it's always been a faith principle. It's never just been about bloodline. If it was, then you know Ishmael's got the same status as Isaac, right? What do we do with all the apostate Israelites in the Old Testament? So as an Old Testament professor, this that discussion that he arrives at that chapter nine through 11 is just fascinating mm-hmm. because it helps me think through. He's not just talking about Jewish and Gentile conflicts, but he's talking about the old and the new, yeah. right? And how they relate. Well, you know, Scott, you touched on something that um, I think our readers or our listeners would benefit from. Like Paul does ask a bunch of questions throughout the letter. And I, I don't think anyone can deny he was brilliant absolutely brilliant just as a person but i'm reminded that a lot of these questions probably came to him over the course of many years of doing ministry and so i think that it's beneficial for even pastors today to realize that you know to be a good communicator of the gospel you actually need to spend just a lot of time doing ministry being with people because only in those contexts do you really learn the questions that people are asking and so like i think that yeah he's probably a brilliant logician where he was able to predict many of the questions but probably he was answering questions that he was asked repeatedly or accused of throughout his ministry oh yeah that's what i mean yeah he's he's having this conversation yeah Yeah. and it it becomes a live issue actually in the as this we see this story and he's worried that he is going to be castigated in Jerusalem. Well, we yeah. get to see that story end. We see it end in Acts 21. What happens? Well, James and Peter receive him. Oh, brother, look, we're so glad. We're so glad the ministry is flourishing. We wrote that letter back in Acts 15. We're so glad that that has, you know, uh, ministry to the Gentiles is flourishing as a result. Um, look, our ministry is flourishing too among the Jews. It's a win-win. Everything is great. There is this one group though. This group that thinks that you are teaching Jews to reject Moses, and we all know that's not what's going on. This is a this is a uh, a rough sketch of uh, Acts twenty one. Uh, we all know that that's not what's going on. We're all you know. We know you're not doing that. You're teaching Gentiles that they don't have to come under Moses. Not Jews have to reject Moses. So, but you need to do something mosaic in order to convince everybody that that's not what you're teaching. So you, and Paul says, yes. And some people see Paul as having kind of a failure of faith there. He's not being true to his gospel. But what Paul does is do something un, uh, unmistakably mosaic, a Nazarite vow in the temple to demonstrate that he can be all things to all men, that this is one gospel and that he can put on Moses and he can also live like a Gentile believer and that that is okay um it's it's a beautiful testimony of Paul's commitment to the unity of the church. It ends badly. Um and it actually ends, it ends ironically with him getting a free trip to Rome, but uh you know, it it ends from a worldly perspective uh without a success it's not a success story, but it is a it is a testament to Paul's desire for this to be one faith and lived out 
Jew, Gentile, as this sing, as as a new humanity under Christ, Romans five. Well, also before we, you know, we definitely have to address that Romans that is about justification. There's no, at least in terms of the way it's been classically stated, that uh, through faith in Jesus we are counted righteous. Because I know that either that reading has become rejected or there's redefinition of what justification is about. But it relates to everything we're talking about here because um, without that doctrine of justification, Paul just cannot discuss uh, reconciliation. And right. that's why even if we don't know the exact historical like background, I, I do think that what we stated already is most likely the case. Um, Tommy used the word before global, and I would add to that universal. Like What I mean by that is it's always going to be human tendency to uh, find justification something else and that and that then becomes the basis for division you know whereas if you accept the classically stated doctrine of justification then then and only then can we really be reconciled to one another so um you know i think that that's just important to keep in mind because even i've noticed um more among the younger folk who subscribe to reform tradition um say that they have uh, no issues with the new perspective. And um, I've never really understood that because the new perspective reading on Paul Romans is obviously very, very different. So I think I, I would encourage people not to be ashamed of uh, what I would call more classical interpretations of Romans. I, I don't think Calvin, Luther, well, you know, they obviously like any interpreter made mistakes along the way, but I, I don't think we should quickly or easily dismiss their uh, readings of Romans. Can you tease that out for us, Paul? What do you mean when you say that justification, and only by affirming the classical view of justification, leads us to a proper view of racial reconciliation, firstly? And secondly, what mm. is this new perspective on Paul that you're talking about? Okay, so those tiny questions <laughs> address. but you know paul says this throughout all his letters uh, i you know i think paul wrote for instance ephesians i know that's not the popular view but uh there he makes it very clear again in ephesians 2 that previously and every person knows this right we form these tribes on the basis of uh, our justification so there are easy ways to do this like you have a group of teenagers who consider themselves like the athletes, the jocks, their justification, there is uh, their athletic prowess, right? And they distinguish themselves from that other group of uh, nerds who distinguish themselves by academic uh, excellence and all of that. And so, you know, the gospel is, I think, very um, insightful in knowing that in these uh, walls that we have, they are always built on what we are justifying ourselves according to, right? And I think that the classical doctrine of justification says that, again, as we've said, no one is righteous and our only hope is in Jesus. And that breaks down all dividing walls using the language of Ephesians 2. That's how I think, that's why justification and reconciliation or salvation and soteriology and ecclesiology, that's how they're organically tied to each other. And once you remove that, I'm not really sure how we can talk about reconciliation, um, at least in biblical terms. As far as a new perspective, okay, this is huge. And even new perspective proponents would not uh, appreciate placing themselves in the same camp. But one of the main tenets, at least as it's been expressed by anti Wright, is that Paul was never really preoccupied with the question of how one must be saved. He thinks that the more operative question is how you know you belong to the people of God, right? And so he, he believes that basically, especially the reformers, 
uh, misread Paul because they equated Judaism of that day with the Roman Catholic Church, and therefore we have to reread Paul in light of um, all these findings in Second Temple Judaism and all, and basically along those lines. Um, there's a, obviously a lot more that can be said and that has been said, but just speaking pastorally, not even as a scholar, I think that that does a tremendous disservice to ministry because at the end of the day, we do need to help people wrestle with that question of how a person is saved. And not only that, I think when you read Acts, Paul, the New Testament, the Bible, like uh, it does care about that question, very much so how a person might be saved. And um, obviously, if you adopt the new perspective of view on Paul, then even your understanding of what justification is radically changes. So I just, my main uh, point there is not even necessarily to fight for orthodoxy as much as I want to. It's just that I don't want people to so quickly uh, just join in what they feel is new, cool, hip, and all of the above. Well, I, Paul seems to me to be so completely in line with an Old Testament doctrine of what salvation looks like as well. I mean, you look at places like Psalm 1, uh, where you have the man who is blessed is the man who's planted by a stream of water. He then bears fruit in its season, right? Jeremiah uses the same analogy to make a slightly different point, but still the idea being that the, the water is the stream or the, the, the Lord, the faith is the roots being planted by the stream. That's where life comes from. It then bears fruit, right? No, no Israelite would have said the tree gets its life from the fruit. It always, it gets its life from the water. That's the necessary interpretation of mm -hmm. that of that metaphor and therefore you can't make uh, you know i think that an ancient israelite would have made a distinction between the fruit and the water right you can't blend them together and and act as if you know one doesn't matter or being planted by a root doesn't matter or by a stream doesn't matter paul seems to be having exactly that same question in mind here too he's, he's making a distinction between works of the law which mm -hmm. would be covenant faithfulness right and faith and he's saying, no, when I talk about justification in this case, granted the word justification can be used in a variety of ways, but in the case of this letter, he seems to be using it to talk about that thing that is accomplished by faith apart from covenant faithfulness. <laughs> now, to be sure, how do you know if someone has faith? You can tell from their fruit, right? But just like in Israel, the, the justification doesn't come from the fruit, right? It comes from the source. It comes from... It comes from the faith. I mean, he says, I, I, to me, with new perspective, and I know that I know that that N.T. Wright and others deal with this, but Romans three, the very end of Romans three, to me, just just really seems to tell me that this is Paul's talking about exactly what we're talking about here. You know, when he says, "Then what becomes of our boasting? It mm -hmm. is excluded by what kind of law? By a law of works? No, by a law of faith. For we hold." that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. He seems to be, he's just saying it in as many ways as he can, that justification is a specific thing in this case, in this conversation, and needs to be distinguished from what happens out, out, you know, afterwards. And he's going to talk about that. He's going to talk about the fruit of faith. And yet this idea of a forensic justification, I think we do see it kind of encapsulated and it seems to be, this is exactly what he's talking about. It's not the only thing he's talking about, this, this, but this is one thing that he's talking about. And I think one thing to mention as well, at least in relation to N.T. Wright and other proponents of perhaps the, the new perspective on Paul, is that there's been lots of 
recent, more recent scholarship that showed that they have a caricatured understanding of Reformation readings mm-hmm. and also of the theologies of Calvin and Luther. Caricatured, and, right? Caricatured, yeah, 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 yeah completely yeah, yeah, caricatured. Yeah, right, right. I know this view that the Reformed were psychologically motivated or they were just legal scholars working in, you know, an alien biblical material that they know nothing about and stuff like that. That's Actually, been... That's outdated readings. Yeah, that, and it reminds me of what a lot of this came out of was with 1970s evangelicalism. Which exactly. Is when a lot of this stuff was getting written. So it's, is that true that college evangelicals were saying stuff like that? That kind sure. of easy, cheap, grace stuff? Absolutely. Oh, yeah. But, yeah. It, but that's not Luther necessarily. That's not the Reformed doctrine. Nope. And there's lots of new work. I mean, even the the 2015, you know, edited volume by John O'Linball and, and our own Michael Allen on Reformation readings of Paul have pushed back against that kind of dichotomy between Reformational readings versus Pauline studies. And also um, recent work by John Barclay and the Lutheran mm-hmm. tradition trying to retrieve uh, actual Lutheran teaching and, and, and reaction to and response to the kind of caricature positions of, of Wright and others. So I think it, it's really important that we also got to point out that just as they are pointing out that reformational readings are wrong, we can point out that their reading of reformational readings are wrong. And it's, it's not it's no longer a fad, I think, to think about the new perspective in that sort of way. And I think um, people who are still enticed by it should do well to be updated with the newer scholarship. And I'd say, you know, N.T. Wright, I remember hearing him speak one time. For those who don't know, he's a... Uh, well-known New Testament scholar and important voice in this new perspective movement that we're talking about. But I heard him speak probably 12, 15 years ago at, a, at one of the biblical conferences when it was held, being held in Atlanta. I think it was either the end of ETS or the beginning of SBL. I think it was the end of ETS. He gave a special lecture. And I remember at that point he was, he was proposing people need to read more Calvin, which many people forget that's one of his first publications is actually on Calvinistic work. But in that lecture, he said, well, if, if people read more Calvin, I wouldn't have had to say the things that I was saying, to which I, I, I take that to be a bit of a, a backpedaling yeah. away from yep. his earlier caricatured view. Uh, not, not to put this, not to say that he's teaching in bad faith, but what I mean is that I think he started to recognize that Calvin was actually pushing against a lot of the stuff that he thought Reformation forensic justification meant. And I've heard him say the same sort of things with regard to Hermann Ritterboss and Gerhardus Voss and their readings of uh, the Reformed tradition. And, you know, that's always a good way to do it. Always say it more strongly in writing and then backpedal in conversation (laughs) because it's always safe to do that. There is a salutary benefit that that I'll mention. I'm going to, I'll kick right here in a minute too. But uh, one of the, one of the things that, that comes out in Romans is that bigger perspective on the gospel. Mm. The how I get saved is an important question, but it is a sub it is a subset of his overall argument, which is how the world, how God made one humanity in Jesus Christ. The problem, I think, with the new perspective is that they throw out the baby with the bathwater, as as Paul already put it, uh, Dr. Jun put it, that I have to distinguish between between Paul's in this conversation, mm-hmm. as Dr. John already put it. Paul of Tarsus and Paul of Fairfax. Paul of Fairfax, as Paul of Fairfax already put it, uh, without that doctrine of justification, without justification as the forensic declaration of, of righteousness based upon an alien right, the alien righteousness of Christ, without that, the new human, the argument for the new humanity doesn't work. It, mm-hmm. it, it doesn't hold together. Uh, so the, the righteousness of God is this, large, uh, forensic, renovative blessing that we receive. Uh, And yet, 
that that establishes new humanity. And yet without the declaration of righteousness, without declaration of our righteousness from God, there is no new humanity. We're all under the curse. Mm-hmm. That's just a deep dive on one topic uh, from the book of Romans. So we could have talked about so many others, right? Um, we could have camped on Romans 1, for instance, and we can talk all about all the issues there. Union with Christ. Yep, exactly. Gender identity issues in Romans 1, uh, apologetics, epistemology. I think we need more episodes in the book of Romans. We probably do. We probably do. Yeah, there are these go-to passages in the New Testament that I go to as an Old Testament person, and I notice they tend to congregate around mm-hmm. Romans and Hebrews. Right? Mm-hmm. That's where I tend to spend I a lot of time. Totally agree. I do want to... I do want to... Pro- prop up the reader's guide idea though, right? That these kind of macro categories help me navigate mm-hmm. the little text. Yeah. So I've got I've got mm-hmm. this problem text or this challenging text or this highly important theological text. And I want to explore that in depth. But I also get to see how that fits into the broader argument of the book as a whole. And that helps me read productively over and over and over again. Ro- revisit Romans 1 mm-hmm. over and over and over again yep. in light of Paul's pastoral purpose. Mm. We're yep. all in need of salvation. We get it through righteousness of God, through Christ by faith. And that changes how the way we, we see everything and how we do everything. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Amen. Well, let's let's land the plane, friends. It's been great having this conversation, and I think it's one that we probably need to return to. Um, but I've learned a ton just sitting here and listening to you all talk about it, and I look forward to being back together again next week. Until then, take care. If you'd like to know more about RTS Washington, come check us out at our website, rts.edu forward slash Washington. You can start a conversation on how to take classes here and have deeper conversations like the one you just heard. And you can also, if you're interested, post questions to this podcast. Go to the show notes uh, of the podcast and you'll see a link there where you can post questions and we will address them in future episodes. Are we are you going to encourage Paul to talk? Mm-hmm. Are you going to maybe you should just call on him first so that he does actually talk? Doesn't ask you questions. About yeah, it. <laughs> and, can, and can you can you instruct him not to ask me questions? <laughs> oh gosh, this is a good thing. That's to remember, good. that's you, good, Tom. Good thing. Just spread this and you kind of you are all you are all experts. Yeah. You are all experts in your field. You've studied a lot. You realize that. No one needs to apologize for their expertise. You know more about it than... Including Rose. Dr. John. He knows about it more than Tim Keller. You wrote on Romans. Right? Well, well said. Yeah, you know more about it than Kevin DeYoung or, or right. Tim Ke- or Tim Keller. That's true. I know. That's I'm seeing you like kind of blop in and out of these two arms. <laughs> <laughs>